I'm here with Shirley Gaston. Hi Shirley, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. And what are you going to talk to us today about? Um, I'm going to talk to you about how to keep learners engaged in learning programmes. And what made you pick that as, as your favourite topic? I think just because it's always been something that I've been passionate about. I went myself to a really interesting primary school where everything was taught through topic, everything was exciting and I really remember things like battles in the park, dressed as a Norman when we were studying the Normans and the Saxons. Wow, sounds completely different than my school. Yeah, and then I went to um, a private boarding school when I was 13 that had a completely traditional way of teaching where people were not engaged in the lessons at all and they mainly consisted of writing on a blackboard, a rolling blackboard, uh, moving that down and expecting everybody to copy down what was on the blackboard for 40 minutes and then go to their next lesson. That sounds a lot more like my school. Yeah, there was a big contrast between the two and I noticed that it was especially noticeable because the private boarding school specialised in children with dyslexia. I don't have dyslexia but lots of other people there did and it was particularly difficult for them to learn in that way. How interesting. So they specialised in something that they were particularly bad at specialising in? Well they had a special unit for the people oh, okay. that were dyslexic and I think they were front runners in terms of coloured lenses and coloured pieces of paper over your work to help people with dyslexia but in terms of the standard lessons it was quite unengaging. So that initial experience as a very young child actually awakened in you this sort of passion for how interesting and fun and engaging learning can be but it also did. how how wrong it could could be. Definitely and after secondary school um, I went travelling for a while I decided to put off going to university as many people do and after traveling for a while and doing various jobs such as lifeguard, cocktail barmaid, that kind of thing, I, I really need to do something um, a bit more interesting while I'm traveling so I de decided to do a program in teaching English as a foreign language and when I did that program, that was exactly like primary school again. It was a completely immersive, engaging experience. And that really inspired me to do learning and development as my career. And because of that TEFL course, I didn't actually go traveling with my TEFL because I decided to do a first degree in education because of that and later did a master's in learning and development. All oh, right, so that TEFL experience reawakened all of those memories from primary school and all of that. Mm -hmm. I travelled after university rather than before, primarily because I was insanely jealous of people like you that had been clever enough to travel before university. I did the same thing, did TEFL, and that again led into learning and development, awakened that interest in, in, uh, in training. I did travel a bit after university as well. <laughs> So that was, I, I still do, I haven't stopped. Yeah, that was mainly as a teacher then. Right. So I taught in New Zealand for a year and and that was great experience actually because I found that teaching in England, it was quite restrictive at that time because they just brought in the national curriculum 
And in New Zealand, they didn't have a national curriculum. So I was free to teach highly engaging lessons. And I did things like, for example, it was the Commonwealth Games um, while I was out there. And I taught an entire half term, all subject areas around the theme of the Commonwealth Games. Oh, that's brilliant. So those, you know, those kind of experiences, I suppose I've brought into the professional and corporate training environment as well. I remember getting told off when I was doing um, teaching English as a foreign language by the school director because the children in my classroom were laughing and that wasn't proper education. <laughs> so I have a lot of sympathy with everything you're saying. So what are the, um, what are the top three that you've chosen to share today? Well, just before I tell you the top three, I need to tell you the number one quote that really sums up what I want to talk about. And that is by Dave Meyer, the father of Accelerated Learning, who said famously, never do for learners what they can do for themselves. And that's what the whole thing's based on. But the three top areas are getting the physical environment right, getting people physically moving around, making things spatial uh, within the room that you've got, and most importantly, getting the participants on the training program doing the thinking and the analysis and the talking, not just taking in information passively. Let's go through those in the order that you said them. Is that, are they in any particular order? Probably in order of increasing importance as we go down the list. All right, so you saved the best till last. Yeah. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Okay. Well, let's talk first about the learning environment. And this is something that um, I'm really interested in as well, and I feel is often neglected. So I'd be really interested to hear what you say about that. Well, I think the first most important thing about the physical environment is wherever possible, get people outside. I think All right. the, okay. the, the biggest problem uh, with hotel rooms and classrooms quite often is a lack of oxygen. People end up with a really bad headache by the end of the day if they're stuck in there all day. And so I think, first of all, trying to choose an environment where you can get outside, even if it's just for breaks uh, and lunches, but ideally you can use the outdoor environment in a, in a minor way. For example, having pairs discuss a particular issue on a walk around the building or in a more major way by doing outdoor exercises related to the content of your training. Okay, so your ideal is trying to get outside, um, as I say, even if it's just for a short term. Yeah, definitely. And while you're inside, the things that are the most important, um, not rocket science, I think everybody knows this, it's the oxygen levels and it's the natural light. Um, as part of that, though, really important that you've got the opportunity for people to eat and drink other than coffee and biscuits, which really doesn't help with their levels of engagement. So, you know, supplying water and fruit and healthy snacks and things is crucial, I think. I had a complaint on the, um, the happy sheet at the end the other day about there being no natural light in, a, in the training room. Mm. So I felt it was a little bit harsh considering it was at night time. Well, there's not really a lot I could do about that. Yeah, definitely. Well, sometimes these circumstances are out of our control, aren't they? But a yeah, lot of times yeah. we do get chance to choose where we are. I think which direction the earth is facing was outside of my control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, interesting, you talk about snacks and things like that as well. What about 
like the structure of the room, how people seat, um, colours, um, toys, those kind of issues? Well, that links in quite a lot to the second area, which is about physical movement. It's because it's so important to get people moving around all the time in terms of room layout it needs to be as flexible as possible. So my actual, you know, ideal situation would be to have tables, maybe around the edges of the room to start with, ideally that are on wheels, that you can move in and out for different things, and chairs, maybe starting with just a horseshoe, but so that if you need to sit round tables, if you need to put groups round tables, you can move to those positions. I'm quite keen on having things in the room of interest to people um, so that they can kind of follow their own interests so things like books associated with the subject uh, maybe things to fiddle with if that's what people need to have um, things for them to do all the time so obviously within the environment you also need um, all your pens and things like many trainers I'm a fan of Mr Sketch smelly markers oh yeah yeah i'm rubbish at working out what the smells are though it's interesting like how much of smell is about sort of suggestion because if you take the brown one for example yeah uh, it's supposed to smell like cinnamon i think and if you think cinnamon and smell it it really smells like cinnamon but lots of people pick it up thinking it's coca-cola and if you think it's coca-cola it really smells like coca-cola that's exactly the example i was going to use was it sorry Trying to work out what that smells like, I usually think, it's Coke, isn't it? It's Coke. And someone says it's cinnamon. They go, oh, no, it's cinnamon. You are right. So, yeah, that is the one that always confuses me most. <laughs> but it's fun to do. It is definitely fun to yes. do. So you'll create the environment as flexibly as possible, really, to allow as much movement as possible and to allow as much kind of uh, variety as possible in terms of pens, books, materials, fiddly toys. Yeah. yeah. Because the most time that I would ever have people in one particular place is about 10 minutes right maximum so if that's going to happen and people are going to be changing around you need as much flexibility and as much space as possible and I mean on on the tiniest level even if you've got like a horseshoe of chairs and people are sitting within that horseshoe to just get everybody standing up rearrange them in some way and get them in a different chair gives people new perspectives on the subject so it's really important to get them moving um, I I don't I'm not just talking about where people sit though in terms of physical movement I'm also talking about trying to make as many concepts or models within the training as possible spatial so rather than present a model from PowerPoint I would maybe make the model a living model by having it on the floor within the room or four box models which are very common use the four corners of the room and put things up in the four corners and get people moving to different corners of the room according to different experiences that they've had and discussing those in the corners oh right so people actually physically get up get into a corner and then whatever that corner is saying then that's the perspective they they see the world from whilst they're standing in that corner yeah and it's, it's making models living. So I'm trying to think of things that um, many, many trainers will be familiar with. Um, so say things like uh, situational leadership 
it's right. got four development levels. Those four development levels can be the four corners of the room. It's got four leadership styles. Those four leadership styles become the corners of the room. Um, and that's the that's the Blanchard, uh, yes, Ken Blanchard and Hersey. Blanchard, yeah, situational leadership. So that's just an example. I mean, if we take it something really simple like time management, most trainers will use the importance urgency matrix. Yeah, make that on the floor rather than making it on a PowerPoint slide and get people to be in the different boxes and talk about the different tasks that go within that box or what you should do um, with tasks that are within that box. Are there any particular things that you train on where this is less applicable? Because no. you said about you said about moving every <laughs> okay. You said no. about moving every ten minutes. I mean, um, are there any times when that is too much? I don't think so. I don't mean that every ten minutes they're doing a physical exercise but every 10 minutes they're moving from uh, potentially a bit of my input on a subject to a bit of discussion about a subject or to an exercise an experiential exercise that links to that subject or to a role play or to being spatially involved in a model Right. Okay. So I think it, it can always work as long as what I really don't believe in is getting up and doing something physical for the sake of doing something physical. It always needs to relate entirely to the content. So part of people keeping people engaged, in my view, is not saying, oh, you're all looking a bit tired. Let's stand up and do a little dance. Right. <laughs> Okay, and do you ever get any resistance from particular individuals or groups that might be expecting a more traditional approach? No, because I think the relevance of whatever we're doing is so clear to them. You know, I'm not just asking them to get up for the sake of it. It's it's to aid their learning and understanding of the subject area, and that's so clear um, that I don't... They possibly don't even notice it. Yeah, potentially. I think it's only after the day when they reflect back on it and say things like, um, the day went so quickly, I felt so engaged in the day, other programs I've been falling asleep by mid-afternoon, that didn't happen to me at all. It's only then that they realise that there's been a bit of a different approach. I think while they're in it, they're just immersed. Yeah. Okay. So you've talked there, first of all, about the actual environment and um, getting us outside as much as possible, as much air, as much fresh air, oxygen, as much natural light as possible, and then creating the environment that's as flexible as it possibly can be, which links directly into how much movement you're trying to create consistently, mm -hmm. changing changing perspective, making models as uh, living as possible. Yeah. You mentioned there about the importance of the task being quite relevant um, yeah. and re relevant to the learning, the training, not just a random dance. How do you ensure that happens? I guess experiential tasks is really my specialist area and what I speak a lot on at conferences. I try really hard to, when I'm designing a programme, think really carefully about how could I bring some of the learning that people need to life through a real experience? And so I have a vast array. Um, I used to run an outdoor management development centre, so I had lots of outdoor tasks as well. And I still do use them um, when the time is right. 
um, but I have about 50 experiential learning exercises in my office and when I'm designing a program I think really carefully about not just what's the right task to use but in this particular situation what's the right name to give this exercise and what is the best way to set it up to reach the objectives that I'm trying to reach and what is the best way to actively and creatively review this exercise to draw out the things that are going to link to topic areas that we're going to be looking at later on in the program and so I spend a lot of time designing different ways of using exercises that I've used many times before just to fit a particular situation perfectly. Have you got an example to illustrate that? I've got many examples, I suppose. Um, if I think about a really straightforward task that I use quite a lot, I could talk to you about a few different ways that I use it. So I've got a, a really basic, I suppose, what would be called a team or teamwork or leadership task that is called the Tower of Power. And it's uh, eight blocks that people need to stack potentially in a tower. So these are physical blocks? Yeah, they're physical wooden blocks. And basically, there's a round piece of wood with lots of coloured strings attached to it, uh, spanning outwards that all the participants hold. So they're in a circle and they're all holding a couple of coloured strings. And then hanging from that piece of wood in the centre, there's a kind of metal frame that can be used to pick up the wooden blocks because the wooden blocks have a slit in the side that the metal can go into. So the basic task is potentially teamwork or leadership stacking blocks as high and as stably as possible. Oh, right. But the, the people holding the, the things need to cooperate. They do, yeah. They need right. to work together. They need to decide what to lift and when, how to do it, how much risk to take. When blocks fall over, they need to work out how they can get those blocks upright again. And it's they're not allowed to touch the blocks with their hands or feet. So it, it becomes a bit of a creative thinking task. But anyway, it's a kind of general task. But I will use that task in lots of specific ways, depending on the content of the training. So for example, if we are working with an organization and thinking about the values within the organization and whether those values are lived in practice or they're just espoused values, then what I will do is put a value on each of the blocks and ask people to build that tower with the values that are most strongly lived at the bottom and the ones that are really dubious and dodgy at the top. And all that becomes is a way of leading into an interesting discussion about the values within the organisation. Or I might completely change the way the exercise is done. I might, if I'm looking at supervisors, for example, in a, in a factory setting and we're looking at 
how to best engage the workers there. I might split the team in two and I might um, designate one team as supervisors in one room with a photo of how the tower needs to look, not just a straightforward tower. And they might have to relay via text or mobile phone or whatever what they want the workers to do with those blocks in another room. Okay, so the task remains the same, yeah. but you change the name potentially, you evolve the details of the task to get different kind of learnings out of it, but it's yeah. the same physical task essentially. Yeah, although there can even be changes with the physical task. Um, so instead of building you know, one straight tower, they might be building a particular arrangement of blocks or instead of building it, they might be dismantling a tower and putting it in another room if you're wanting to get into things about change. Or even just for something really basic like time management, there's a book that I love called How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And it's got, it's by Graham Olcott, and it's got eight characteristics of a productivity ninja. And I put those on eight blocks and I literally just give them a really tiny 10-minute challenge to stack up as many of these characteristics as they can. And that leads into some work about what do these eight characteristics mean, where are they stronger, where are they weaker as an individual, and links into working with you know their own task lists and their own workloads in terms of how do they need to apply some of these characteristics and what specifically they could do. Okay, thanks for that. That's a really good example. Maybe a bit too long-winded. No, not at all. Not at all. It's great. Let's talk about the most important part of keeping people engaged, which is getting them doing the thinking. Go for it. So if we take a... I think we should start with a really simple example. Most trainers at the beginning of a program will lay out the objectives for the program. They might have yeah. them on a PowerPoint slide, they might have them on a, a flip chart, and they might talk through them. I think that's a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, actually. <laughs> so yeah. to take a really small example, if you want to share the objectives of the program with, with people, you want to get them engaged with the objectives of the program and what they are. So rather than read them out to people or talk about them where people are just sitting there passively going, blah, 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 we've seen these before, I'm just thinking about what I'm having for tea, what you need to do is get them engaging with them. So if you want to share them, you could put them up on a screen and you could say, discuss with your partner which of these objectives is the most important to you today and put a sticker on the one that's the most important you're getting them to discuss it and therefore they have to think about it and they have to talk about them all and again exactly. you've brought in you brought in a bit of physical movement it's a sticker yeah so they have to stand up and actually have to move and and physically get engaged with it as well exactly so that's a tiny and simple example but i think it gives the idea that needs to be applied to everything in the program so let's say you want to share with people a model and the model, you know, is a key part of your program. Maybe it's um, five steps to influencing, for example, it could be anything. Then I think the really important thing is do not present the model. You know, it doesn't matter how funny you are and what great anecdotes you can give around presenting the steps for the model if they're not engaged in it, if they're not evaluating it, thinking about it, talking about it, 
who knows whether they're learning. They could be, but they might not be. So if, if there's a model, get them to build the model. You know, maybe you get them to build a model from scratch based on a particular situation and they can build it on a floor, on a, on a pin board, on a wall. Or maybe you give them parts of a model that you really want them to know and understand and you get them to work out what order they should go in and you get them to justify what they've built. Only by doing that will they have any level of understanding of the model and only by doing that will is there any chance of them being able to recall it a few weeks later. Okay, so it's again very much about them doing the thinking, you giving them some basic tools and structure and guidance, obviously, but then it's them doing the thinking, doing the doing the putting it all together. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that it's, it's done less than it should be is that it takes quite a lot of preparation. It's quite easy, isn't it, to have a deck of slides and just think, well, if I talk through all this, I'm reaching the objectives and I'm, you know, telling them everything I'm supposed to tell them. Yeah, if, especially if, if you like the sound of your own voice. Exactly. But if for every step of the whole program, you want them actually engaging with the material and you want them remembering it, then you need to really think, don't you? For every everything that you want to put across, you've got to think, what do I need to prepare? What can I give them? What laminated cards can I have ready for them to discuss? What, you know, coloured pieces of a model do I need to prepare for them to be able to work with that model? Yeah, there's definitely a lot more preparation, a lot more thinking you need to do as a trainer as well as the physical preparation. Yeah. There's also, uh, also, it can take longer. It's much easier to talk through a model in 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes than it is to do that. Time pressure can sometimes make people shy away from that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. But if, if I think about some examples, um, I was part of, um, actually as an associate trainer, a really big rollout of a sales program. So there were 10 different trainers delivering it. And it was quite PowerPoint based. And we only had two days. And at the end of two days, the participants had to get through an exam. They had to get through one written exam and then one role play exam um, in order to get certification. Everyone had only two days. There were 10 of us. And everybody focused it mainly from the PowerPoint slides. But I changed it. And I developed loads of materials for doing exactly what I'm talking about, getting them engaged with the model instead of showing them the model. And I, there were many, many models over the two days that they had to become familiar with. So there was a lot of preparation to do initially. As the two days built up, not only did they have to get physically engaged um, and, uh, and also mentally engaged with all the models, and applying them to their own situations themselves but they also created a display around the walls of the room over the two days of basically everything that was going to be in the exam and I only had two days like the other trainers but the people in my group got the best exam results and so I think all that extra preparation was worth it and I'm not just talking about one group this was a big rollout so it was you know, 10 trainers doing 10 to 30 groups each. Yeah, I think so often the, the real objective of a training course is for the trainers to get through material rather than the people to learn. And if you can get more effective learning by taking a little more time and doing things more engagedly and taking advantage of the social aspect of learning. Yeah. I, com I completely agree with you. I think it's time very well invested. 
Definitely. Um, and it, it does go right back to what I learned about the way people learn when I did my original degree in education and the things that I worked with school children, many of them equally apply to working with chief executives. Right. <laughs> when you first introduced this topic, I thought that you were going to talk about the principle whereby almost everything involves people going back to flip charts and coming up with their own content based on the principle that people will accept content they generated themselves more readily than they will accept content given by a trainer. What's your opinion on that, that approach? That's interesting. I think there is some truth in it. I think that it is massively overdone currently in the training world. That's what I think. I think it's death by flip chart, isn't it? Yeah, there's too much like capturing thoughts on flip chart. And then it's like, what are we capturing them for? To be blue tack to the wall. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, so we're talking about, I don't know, performance management. What are the pros and cons of, say, monthly one-to-ones? Let's get your thoughts on that. Let's capture it. Yeah. Let's have a little chat about it. It's like... My aim in programs is for people to learn, not just find out what's in their head and capture it. So I, I agree with the concept that things that people come up with themselves, they own more. And there's a lot of collective knowledge out in the room, which you need to acknowledge. I also think that it is our role as trainers and facilitators but especially you know in a training capacity to bring some knowledge but enable the learners to engage with that new knowledge link it to things that they already know try it out in real situations that link to their workplace and go away knowing it and able to use it and able to remember it six months later what i like is where people get in touch with a situation where they're like, I have to put this across. People need to learn this and it's really boring and it's really dry. And I can say for that particular situation, right, here's some ideas for how you could do that in an engaging way. So I need, I need like an open clinic session on the end of this call, I think. Well, how, if people do have questions, questions exactly like that, how would they contact you? They can email me or phone me. They can look at the Trainer Tools website, which is www.trainer-tools.com, and there'll be a, you have a profile on there with links. But do you want to just tell everybody where, where you work, what your company is, and what you do, and how they could, could get in contact with you? Yeah, so I have a training company that's 16 years old. It's called Azesta. It's a limited company. It's based in North Yorkshire, in the Yorkshire Dales, although I tend to have to go where clients are, so that could be anywhere. I also distribute in the UK uh, experiential learning tools for a German company called Metalog. Do you want to say something about that? Um, it's just, it's a great company actually, based just outside Munich. There is one distributor in each of many different European countries. I am the one for the UK. And the company design and develop quite simple management and leadership experiential learning tools. There are around 40 in the current catalogue. 
And the thing that is great about the company is I get to go and visit every year in Munich and the tools that are mainly wooden, uh, also plastic and metal, but they're all handmade in workshops by adults in Germany with learning disabilities. So the majority of the people that work there have Down syndrome. There are various other learning difficulties that people have and they get to basically have a really engaging, fulfilling, real full-time job with a salary and get to feel like they have a real purpose, which I think is really important. And my ambition is to grow the business enough in the UK that we get to bring production over here. And is there a link to that or can people see the catalogue of that from your website? It is linked from the website, yeah. And it's also metalogtools.co.uk. And your website is? azesta.co.uk. And that's A-Z-E-S-T-A. Correct. Thank you very much for your time today, Shirley. That's really, really interesting. Thank you.